0: Welcome to The Get, the podcast for enterprise leaders delivering timely insights for today's global economy and tomorrow's competitive advantage. I'm Chris Kane, your host, president of the Center for Global Enterprise. And today we sit down with Sam Palmisano, founder and chairman of the Center for Global Enterprise and former chairman and CEO of IBM, and Karen Evans, managing director of the Cyber Readiness Institute, and former U.S. Department of Homeland Security Chief Information Officer to discuss business continuity in turbulent times. Sam, Karen, welcome. Thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Right now, the world is experiencing numerous disruptions from a number of different vectors. Geoeconomic, geopolitical, technology, cybersecurity, climate change, etc. While maybe not new to business, disruptions and turbulence are constant pressures on business and its ability to operate. Throw into that mix the fact that speed is an expectation that keeps accelerating in our society and in our daily lives. And it's clear why companies are viewing data as the engine that powers more and more business operations, enabling flexibility and agility. Yet many businesses struggle to identify and protect the critical information they need to keep their operations running. Let's focus on how CEOs ensure business continuity in turbulent times. What are the mistaken assumptions about business continuity that enterprise leaders need to correct? Sam, can we begin with you? The first thing I believe,
1: if you look at this thing over time, that business leaders have been challenged by uh, is the associated cost within their operations to actually create a resilient company in itself. And they look at the cost and they look at trade offs associated with cost. In some cases they'll consider insurance. In some cases they'll say, I'll, I'll just risk this it might not happen to me, etc." The other issue is the smaller companies, quite honestly, that just don't have the resources. It's not even a cost question. They don't have the talent to do the things that are necessary to create a resilient enterprise. In the past, people would say, well, okay, I'll take the risk. But that was before they entered into this digital journey in this data driven enterprise model that you mentioned in your introduction. Now the implications of a disruption to their operations relative to their brand and the value of their brand are much more significant than they were in the traditional world, let's call that the analog world versus this connected digital data-driven world. It's much more significant today than it was in the past.
0: So we're in a transition phase where enterprises have organized themselves for a lot of decades around an analog capability, and yet the digital overlay has been fast and furious, allowing some companies to accelerate even more and other companies having the need to catch up. Karen? Thoughts on the mistaken assumptions that organizations might have as uh, they strive to create business continuity?
2: We could continue to play on the analog version and pulling that out into a digital version. And I think some of the mistakes that are made are plans that you had in place with the previous capabilities that CEOs think that those plans are still going to work. And if you don't test those plans, or you're relying on your staff to say, yeah, these plans, these will work. You don't want to be in the middle of a crisis to find out that there's a big gap in your plan. The other part is that a lot of small businesses, they haven't even thought about what should be in a plan or how do I do a plan or maybe somebody else is doing it and I just have to make a phone call. And I think the most critical thing is when the crisis happens, who is the first phone call that you make?
0: you each have touched on a a couple of decisions that every CEO and every uh, business leader has to make, which is how do I invest my resources and into what? And so the investment question about business continuity is a really interesting one. And one that I think, Sam, probably based upon your experience, people have had to make trade-offs traditionally about where to invest and when to invest. What do you think the essential steps are that you would recommend to a CEO or to a business in order to deal with business continuity in today's world, which is uh, consumed by those vectors that we talked about at the beginning?
1: Well, first of all, Chris, the vectors that you've described are much more dramatic than they ever were in my career as a CEO. So let's just kind of level set there. We have many issues to deal with, but not nearly the ones that our colleagues now are managing through. So I have great respect for the balls that they're juggling every day. But I think fundamentally it depends on Which element of your company? They are different. If you take supply chains, which are fundamentally key, especially as you get to this business to consumer model, where you want to meet the service levels that people have accomplished in retail or home delivery and those sorts of things, you need to really look at your supply chain from a perspective of redundancy. Historically, people optimized around scale. So therefore, i.e. China is the manufacturing factory of the world. Forget the geopolitical dimensions associated with what I just said. In today's world, no one would want a centralized response to their key suppliers. You want to have some distributed model for multiple reasons. One is obviously resiliency in case you do get a disruption, which could be climate, by the way. It doesn't have to be some geopolitical issue. But in addition to that, you want to be closer to the actual markets that you're serving. Because if you think about the service levels people are going to be trying to deliver as they make this transition to a data driven enterprise, you need to deal with the geographic distance, not only in a pandemic, but just in normal operations, almost what we call in telecom, the last mile. So when you look at supply chains, it's, it's a combination of those two. When it comes to your IT infrastructure, again, it's different, right? Because you should have always built into your IT infrastructure resiliency and redundancy and backup and recovery. If you were a bank or a large retailer, you were expected never to go down, never to fail. So large enterprises obviously have done that within their IT infrastructure. However, small businesses don't have the resources to do those sorts of things, but they can partner. They have the flexibility to partner with people who do have their resources. In today's environment, let's talk about cloud. There are large cloud providers, whether it's Amazon, Microsoft, Google, IBM, a lot of large cloud providers or a small company could get some level of redundancy and availability that might be hard for them to achieve on their own. I mentioned those two different points because in ways they're different. One is when you would actually optimize your own supply chain with your partners. And the other was if you don't have the resources and you can't do it yourself, then find a partner and do it with them.
0: That's great. And Karen, you lead the Cyber Readiness Institute, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, but clearly, cyber readiness for small and medium businesses is different than a large enterprise. How would you advise small and medium business owners and CEOs to take steps to build their resilience and their business continuity, either before or after a problem arises?
2: Thanks for asking me about CRI, the Cyber Readiness Institute. I am very excited about the opportunity to work with small and mid-sized businesses, especially as it relates Uh, to business continuity, because I think the opportunity is there. Sam hit on a couple things that I thought were really critical about the geographical locations of where small businesses are and, and how their distributors work. And I've had an opportunity as I've taken on this role to talk to some small businesses that when COVID hit, they didn't even realize that some of their distributors for their products came from overseas. When they were trying to buy from a local mid-sized person, that person was getting their products from overseas. They had to re-engineer the whole piece because they didn't even realize how a lot of this was working. Sam hit on this too, and I started smiling. I'm sure you could see it when he brought up the last mile. Those of us who have been in this forever... Know that you can have these great plans, but if you can't hit that last mile in order to be able to deliver the service, if the goods can't get there, if the telecom can't get there, if the service can't get, get there, these plans are for naught. I think what's happened and where CRI really plays is try to take all these really complicated issues and make it pretty simple for them to be able to say, hey, what is your key service and who helps you? provide that? Is it a local distributor? Everything that you need to make that service work, do you know where it comes from? And if you don't, then here are some questions you can ask the people who you are buying these things from in order to be able to have what Sam said is more the resilience, like the backup. How does this work? And how long can I actually continue to run my business in an alternate fashion if all these other things stay down because they're beyond my control. And then what am I gonna do to re-engineer the business?
0: There's so much on the minds of CEOs and small business owners about risk. Clearly everybody is dealing with third parties, whether it's your supply chain partners, your distribution colleagues, or your customers in some cases. So much risk comes from third party relationships. How can organizations better manage their third party risk? If, if there were two things that you would advise a business owner to do tomorrow relative to managing or beginning the process of managing, what would they be? Think about it this way. You should view
1: your third parties no longer as vendors. You should think in today's world, your third parties as an extension of your enterprise. Let's call that a partnership relationship. So since they are an extension of your enterprise, all your internal processes and procedures that you have for your internal organization relative to resiliency and security and those sorts of things, you should apply through procurement to your partners. And that's whether it's to go to market model, care and reference distribution, or it's the supply model. I, I talked about supply chains, but regardless of the front end or the back end, if you think about your business, think about this as a partnership. Now, if they're a partner an extension of your organization, you're going to have in place certification and audit just like you have for your entire enterprise. My point being is if you deal with them as partners and their extensions of your brand and what you represent to your customers your services into the marketplace, you'll reorient yourself to how you deal with them versus just having procurement drive cost out of their businesses to give you a better price. You should think about this strategically now versus just perhaps how you thought about it in the past it's no longer just a cost agenda because it drives your brand and your revenue model if you can fulfill the promise that you're offering through this extension of the ecosystem
0: so it's no longer a transaction it's an ongoing relationship that is conveying data and in other information critical to your operations
1: it's a transformation of procurement mm-hmm. If you think about historically, we've all done this. IBM is an example of that. We all centralized procurement to drive cost out of the business through our extended resources that we worked with every day. And we had thousands of suppliers around the world, thousands of go-to-market models, partners around the world. But it was a cost-driven model. You have to reorient yourself. Think about it as we talk about at CGE, the front side flip. It's now your brand, your customer, and your revenue model. And when you think about your revenue model, you can't afford an outager, you can't afford some breakdown in those processes. So if you strategically rethink this, you'll have a completely different
0: orientation and approach. Yeah, that's really great. Karen?
2: I'm listening to Sam and I'm thinking applying some of this stuff from government, but then turning around and saying, okay, so how does a small business CEO Actually, make this happen because they're the partner, they're the extension, they're part of the business enterprise that Sam is talking about. And how do you get a certain level of assurance from that group who, where a lot of the innovation comes from, right? And they have a lot of trade offs that small businesses have to look at. And it shouldn't be cost, cost shouldn't be a driver. So, when you take a look at, okay. What is the basic levels? It really comes down to every entity, every part of you is using technology. So technology is embedded in everything we do. I mean, it's just there. It's a given. And it's gotten wrapped around cybersecurity, but it's really about how do I use the technology as a partner? And that's what we're talking about in this brand piece. And so CRI offers Four core basic capabilities that we think small, mid-sized businesses, if they actually implement our program, that they'll be good business partners in this enterprise, that this relationship is going to be really good. For example, we have passwords and we talk about passwords and we talk about multi-factor authentication. If you blow it up and you look at all of the things that could happen to a supply chain or an enterprise, It comes down to somehow somebody got a phishing email, right, which is another area that we look at, and they thought it was real. And some of the internal information from one of your suppliers or partners gets passed on to an adversary. And that adversary now can capitalize off of that, and we can have a ransomware attack. And now the whole relationship, that whole ecosystem ends up being disrupted. Some of the simple things, which in the technology world, they call cyber hygiene, but in the business world, to me, it makes sense on how you set things up. So why wouldn't you want to have good passwords? Why wouldn't you want to train your people? Why don't you want to have this culture of a cyber leader or risk management within a small business from the get-go so that you can end up being a good partner with the larger companies in that supply chain. Because you could end up being the one with the most innovative, coolest thing that one of our partners needs to have in the supply chain. And if you don't have these basic four core pieces down that we call being cyber ready, uh, you could be hacked. You could have a ransomware attack and now you're shut down. You have no revenue and you have affected everybody upstream.
0: When I hear you both talk and recommend action steps for business leaders, what I'm thinking about is before we were all connected through digital technology, every business knew what to do if they had a fire, if they had doors that didn't close, they knew what to do in the physical world. What I hear you saying is do the same kind of thought process you did when you were just operating in the physical world and bring it to the digital and connected world and do it as quickly as you can because you have more reach, but you also have more risk. We've seen recently extreme examples of economic disruption based upon business incontinuity, uh, colonial pipeline, and other incidents that have come from the cybersecurity face. The cost to the economy is one thing, and the cost to the business itself is another, but it's certainly gotten the attention as appropriately it should from government officials and government regulators who are now turning their attention to what can they do through regulation to address some of these outages. How should business leaders be addressing and thinking about that emerging regulatory environment that government is starting to establish in their attempts to mitigate the business disruptions that come from some cyber attacks, like the ones I've mentioned. I mean, first of all, government has a role
1: to protect society, and they're trying to do that extremely well. The problem is the capability that government has. In many of these areas, as you know, I was on the Cybersecurity Command Center with NSA. I co-chaired the Obama Commission on Cybersecurity. So we've been through all their processes and their capabilities. So I say this as a knowledgeable person, although I was not a government employee. They don't have the capability on their own to establish pragmatic regulation that the business community or private sector can adopt. So therefore, and we recommended this in all of our recommendations. The only way to do this well is to collaborate with the business community. And you can have some research organizations and academia could also be helpful. But if you don't do this together, they'll come up with regulations written by staff lawyers that cannot be implemented. And they might be great from a uh, legislative perspective or maybe an executive order perspective, but they're not practical in the marketplace. So you need to have that combined entity. My opinion, having worked with all these organizations, definitions of what is a cyber hack back to the old days of the command center and NSA. So, before you regulated, you needed the definition, and you could never agree on the definition between a national security threat and just some rogue kid who's a hacker. So, I would suggest, and those interested parties to come up with approaches and regulations to have that skill set come together. I mean, Karen's been part of the
0: government as well. Karen, you were on the inside. How effective and how efficient is government at actually partnering with the private sector to get outcomes, not just collaboration?
2: I knew you guys were going to ask something along these lines. There's a lot that is happening. You should think of the government as an extension of your enterprise as well as your partnership. The other complexity to this is where do you sit in society as a business? what is your business actually doing, which adds a level of complexity to this. So if you're in what is designated critical infrastructure, such as Colonial Pipeline, which they were, how, how does that work? And then if you're not, and I'll give you a great example, and this is what the government is working on, is if you're a power company and you have a, a Department of Defense base right within the same neighborhood and then there's a hospital And the power outage, and it's not even from a nation state, a hurricane comes through. How do you determine who gets the lights on first? It's a life and death situation. If we're at war and there's a hospital and there's a DOD base there, like how does that work? And so this gets back to the overall business continuity that we were talking about and business resilience and where do these businesses that are key around? hospitals and defense how do they all play in order to bring up a government service we see that things have accelerated so fast in congress i worked with congress a lot they want to be able to say that they did something to help solve the problem that's really what everybody's trying to get to is how do we solve this and how do we make the nation better and it's a global problem because how do we work with all our international partners to be able to do this as well to sam's point There are a lot of people who want to regulate, put things in place. What you're going to end up driving is a compliance culture versus a risk management culture, a partnership culture. You'll have these unintended consequences, and I saw it firsthand when we were doing it within the federal government for federal systems. We would have people who would produce the best reports in the world. Everything would look great across the board and they were the first ones to be hacked. So you could pay 350000 to $500,000 for all these documents and you'd be the first one that was hacked because they're not reflective of the culture that has to change within the organization. And that's why I get really excited about CRI because it's focused on the human behavior. And we can say a lot of things about, well, we can put the regulations in and This is how we're going to measure it. And here's the penalties we're going to put on it. But you want information to be going back and forth. The one piece I think that Sam hit on is the national security aspect. Private industry is going to see a lot more than the federal government's ever going to see. Because they're a global operation, the way that they run things. But what they need is the context around what they're seeing because they can see a whole bunch of, you know, hey, I'm knocking on a bunch of doors, but the government can put the context around that and say, don't worry about that. You might have 50,000 of these particular incidents, but oh, by the way, you've got 10 over here in these key strategic companies with these key strategic supply chain partners. These are the ones you have to worry about. And that has to come from what Sam is saying is the partnership and the government and industry looking at them as an extension of each other.
1: Uh, If I could just add to what Karen ended on, the solution to what she was saying was information sharing between the private sector who sees it first and the the appropriate government agencies who have responsibility to secure our society. That leads to a whole set of legal issues, right? They all start with, who can I hold liable? If I share the information, am I now going to be sued because I was hacked? Finally, after, gosh, 10 years or so, CISA now has come up with a way to share information. But my point is, when you take a simple goal as sharing information, when you put it against this matrix of all these disparate parties, you need someone to establish leadership. Now, CISA has done that, by the way. I mean, I've been retired 10 years. I was on the task force 15 years ago. And they finally have come up with a mechanism because that's just the nature of all this independent interaction from multiple parties of interest, you know, IE litigation firms, trial lawyers, et cetera, that makes simple things like just share information for the good of society, very hard to get done.
0: I think if we saw one thing from the pandemic, and I know we saw many, is the awareness that the interdependence between government and the private sector is so strong on daily life even when it's not recognized by the respective parties. So I think what we've been talking about today is we're all in this together and we have to create strategies and partnerships to get the outcomes we seek, which is a more secure, more continuous and a more resilient economy and business. The GET is sponsored by the Center for Global Enterprise celebrating 10 years of convening global enterprise leaders around the most important business transformation issues. All production and marketing for The Get is provided by Sandow Design Group. Our theme music is by Desi Funlove, available on Spotify. The Get is available wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Center for Global Enterprise, go to www.thecge.net. And thank you for listening.